Armageddon is the climax of the tribulation, the end of the rule of evil on this earth that began in Genesis chapter 3 and continues through this very day. And in this episode, we are going to talk about how the, e the end of evil rule finally happens, the return of Jesus, and everything that that in entails. Again, on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And before we dive into this episode, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of one of the great men of God who has had a great deal of influence on my life, who's been one of my mentors, along with Dr. Chuck Missler, one of the people who has had the most impact on my walk with God recently and has just helped enlighten me and thousands, if not millions of other people. That is Dr. Michael Heiser, the author of The Unseen Realm and The Facade and The Portent and many other uh, books that have shed, has shed light on the supernatural worldview and the the view of the Elohim and, and the role that they play in the plan of God, which again, if you don't have that supernatural worldview, you will never fully understand the plan of God and the entire narrative of the Bible. Dr. Heiser had been battling pancreatic cancer for a couple years now, and it seemed to be in remission. However, over the holidays of 2022, he started feeling ill and went in to get treatment for that. And we just found out earlier this year in January of 2023, which is when I'm, uh, I'm broadcasting here in early 2023 in January, he realized that, or his doctors realized that he, his cancer had come back um, in a very aggressive way that was beyond treatment. And a few days ago, he lost his battle with cancer and he is now with the Lord. And while we mourn his passing, I am just pleased to know that he is with God. Now he is part of that divine council that he has often talked about. So while he will be missed here on earth and missed by me personally, he is in a much, much better place. That's not a colloquialism when they say he's in a better place. Dr. Heiser absolutely is. And I envy him in many ways because I, I'd rather be where he is than where I am. But that means that his mission is over. He has run his race, as Paul said, and he is now with the, the Lord and congratulations to him. And he's I'm sure he has a great reward there in heaven. And for those of us who are here on earth, we just have to keep trudging along until such time as the Lord calls us to be with him or we are raptured, hopefully the latter. And again, I just want to salute Dr. Heiser for everything he's done for the Christian community, what he's done for me personally. And a lot of what he's done is reflected here on Faith by Reason. So just wanted to take that moment to acknowledge him and give him his flowers and just let him know that he is missed. And one day soon, we will all Christians be with him. Okay, so that said, we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation and we are on Armageddon. And Armageddon is, as I said earlier, the climax of the period of time that Christians refer to as the tribulation, the last seven years of human rule, of secular rule, of evil rule on this earth, which began in Genesis chapter Genesis, excuse me, chapter three, when the servant of Nahash uh, basically uh, when he tempted Adam and evil entered the world and evil has ruled the earth from then until this period in Armageddon. And Armageddon ends it all. And we are going to study that in this week's episode. Now, last time we talked about the 10 myths of Armageddon because Armageddon is such a part of our pop culture and has become colloquial in the way it is spoken of. There, there have been a lot of misunderstandings and mythology around it. And we dealt with that last time. So now that the mythology is taken care of and the myths are taken care of, we're going to get into what Armageddon actually is and the biblical definition and the, the biblical aspects of it. So we're going to read from the chapters and verses in the Bible that deal with Armageddon itself. So we're going to start with Revelation chapter 19, which encapsulates Armageddon, but because it, like most areas of the Bible that talk about major events, it's not just in one place. It's throughout the Bible. It's sprinkled there deliberately so that there is not just one place. So if, some, so if someone 
says that, you know, well, this area of the Bible isn't accurate or whatever. Well, you know what? There's a bunch of other areas that talk about the same thing. So the message of the Bible, the message of the major events in the Bible are spread throughout the Bible deliberately for that very reason. So we will be jumping to a few areas, but the main point we're going to start with is Revelation chapter 19. So let's read from Revelation chapter 19. And as we talk about the narrative of how Armageddon plays out, we will see that we go to other, a couple other places, especially in the Old Testament, where which is where a lot of these end times scenarios are narrated. Um, we know we'll go there and talk about those, and um, that will give us a fuller picture of how this narrative plays out. And we should be able to cover it all in this one episode, because like the bowls of wrath, it doesn't take long. God does not spend a whole lot of time on things he doesn't like doing and he doesn't like judging he doesn't like destroying god is good good is creation destruction is evil sometimes you have to destroy in order to build so you have to destroy something bad in order to build something good and that's what god is going to be doing here that's what jehovah will be doing he'll be destroying evil in order to create more good but he doesn't like doing it so he spends very little time on it so despite the fact that this is the big climactic event it doesn't take long and he doesn't spend a lot of time on it. So I'm not going to eat this. We're going to wrap up Armageddon in this episode. So let's start just by reading the the narrative that begins in Revelation chapter 19. And it's going to start in uh, verse 11 because we went through the first uh, 10 verses because the first 10 verses of chapter 19 actually rehashed the celebration over the destruction of Mystery Babylon, which is the end of religion. And we, we covered that a few episodes ago, so we're not going to go into that again. We're going to start with uh, uh, verse 19, oh, excuse me, with verse 11. Because this this um, uh, basically, um, I'm sorry about that. This this documents the second coming, one of the, the, one of the greatest events in all of human history, probably the second greatest event. I think the greatest event was Jesus' first advent when he, when he saved us. The second greatest is when he returns. Um, to to overthrow evil and bring in his kingdom. So chapter 19, verse 11 from the New King James Version. Now I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his head were on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven follow uh, the armies. Excuse me. Uh, the armies in heaven, clothed in five fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat of the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in the presence in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, and that is the Armageddon narrative from Revelation. A lot of things happening there. But before we get to that, let me just step back and kind of give you the outline of where we are, how we got to this point and what a lot of these things mean. So before this narrative began, we were at the end of the bowls of wrath. The bowls of wrath are when God pours out his final judgment on to the world, judging them for the evil that has happened since the beginning, since Genesis chapter three, all the way up to you know, the, the very time that these things occur. And when the, um, I think the sixth bowl is poured out, the river Euphrates is dried up. And it's not because the river Euphrates is that, 
you know, great of a thing physically. It's, just, it's a spiritual thing. We talked about this at the end of a couple of episodes when we talked about the bowls of wrath. It dries it up so that the way of the kings of the east will be prepared. These are, this is not China. That's, that's kind of, it's frankly silly when you think about it. It's not China. China is not what the kings of the east are. The kings of the east is about spiritual evil. China does not need the Euphrates to dry up if they ever wanted to invade the Middle East. That's just that that's really current geopolitics that we're superimposing onto the, the the God's narrative. No, the river Euphrates is a river where a fallen Elohim, where evil spiritual entities have been imprisoned and the river being dried up. The water being dried up means they're let out, let out of their prison. And these are the last of the fallen Elohim, the evil spiritual entities that have been bound, they're let out and onto the earth. All of spiritual evil is now on earth. We've seen this happen throughout this narrative, throughout the book of Revelation. We saw when the stars of heaven, which are an idiom of what we call angels, fallen angels were cast down to earth. The So the angels who were in the spiritual realm, the Elohim realm were cast down to earth. So they're on earth. The Elohim who were bound under the earth, which we read about in the pseudepigraphal book of Enoch. They were all, earthquakes were happened in Revelation chapter six, in the sixth seal, which we talked about before. The earthquake happened that opened up the earth and let them out. So they're on the earth now. And all at, at this point, all spiritual evil who from the beginning of time are now physically on earth, meaning they are ready to be judged. They're out of the heavens, they're out of the earth, they're out of the water realms where they've been imprisoned because water has been used as a prison for Elohim for, again, evil spiritual entities since the beginning. They're All the players are on the board and they're ready to be judged. And when this happens, we talked about this a couple episodes ago. Once this happened, the, the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet, and the dragon, then the Chash, the serpent of old, they all know, okay, our time's up. Everyone's on the board now. Everyone's available to be judged by God. It's time for us to do our thing. So as we saw before, they sent out, send out spirits that look like frogs to the rest of the, to the other kings of the earth. And these are not physical earthly human kings. These are again, spiritual principalities, spiritual, spiritual evil in high places, which, which Paul talks about. He's talking to they go out to spiritual evil to tell them it's time for our final stand. Jesus is about to come back. The fallen angels and the Nephilim and the demons and all of them, they know the Bible as well as we do. They know it in many ways better than we do. They know that this time is coming. They know that Jesus is going to be coming back soon. And they know that they have very little time to do anything about it, but they really can't. But they're they making their final stand. And that's what this is all about about and we saw when we looked at the end of the bowls of wrath that those spirits like frogs out of the mouth of the false prophet and the and the beast and the dragon go work go around working signs to all the other fallen entities saying it's time to be gathered together in the place called armageddon or harmageddon or more accurately harmoed where is harmoed we talked about this in the last episode Harmoed is not the Valley of Jezreel. It is not the Valley of Megiddo. It is, Har means mountain. It's Harmoed. It is the mountain of assembly of the mountain of God in Jerusalem. That's where they're going. They are not gathering in the Valley of Megiddo. They are gathering at the mountain, Mount Moriah, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. That's the place where the mountain of God is. Yes, they may gather together in, in a staging area in the Valley of Jezreel, in the Valley of Megiddo. But again, it's Har Megiddo, Mountain of Megiddo, Mountain of Moed. It's not a valley, it's a mountain. So they may gather in a valley, marshalling their forces, but they are marching to the, to the mountain of God. Why are they doing that? Because that they're, in, they, they're trying to invade heaven. They are trying to do the exact same thing they did at Babel. What was Babel? We talked about this last time. Babel was a gateway into the Elohim realm. They, Nimrod, who again is inhabiting the Antichrist at this time, we've talked about this many times, go back to the, the um, study on the, on, the, on the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast. 
to, to know what this means. Nimrod is doing the same thing he did at Babel. Babel was a tower, an artificial mountain to invade heaven because the these areas where the veil is thin, where the barrier between heaven and earth are, is thin, is usually on mountains. Mount Bashan or Mount Hermon is one of those areas. That's where the 200 angels who came down and defiled themselves with women, according to Genesis chapter 6 and the pseudepigraphal book of Enoch talk about there. The, uh, the mountain of assembly, which was in Eden, which is again is Mount Moriah or Golgotha right outside of Jerusalem is where where God's mountain of assembly is, where his divine council was, which again, the late Dr. Heiser talked about explicitly. They were at Babel. They were trying to make their own mountain of assembly to invade heaven. And Nimrod's going to do that again as he embodies the Antichrist. So they're going to Jerusalem to invade heaven. Why? Because the earth is defunct at this point. At this point, the earth is uninhabitable. You can't live here. Why? We've talked about what happened in these, during the bowls of wrath. At the bowls of wrath, all the water in the earth is turned to blood. The river, the fresh water, rivers and streams are turned to blood. Salt water are turned, turned to blood of a dead man. There's no, the, no, the darkness is all over the earth. The, the, the sun has scorched, has scorched people. The, 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 the trees and the green grass are all burned up. There's no more vegetation left. And then you have the earthquake that has made all islands disappear and all mountains turn flat. So we're talking magnitudes, forgetting magnitude 10, we're probably talking a magnitude 20 earthquake that's flattened the entire earth. And then you have 100 pound hailstones smashing everything that's existed. The earth is uninhabitable at this point. The earth, that which people have fought over for millennia, is now a completely uninhabitable wasteland. So the earth is no longer a prize. Where, so and, and again, these Elohim fell from heaven, which now they're men, because again, remember that man and Elohim are not biological designations. They're designations of residency. If you reside in the physical realm, you're a man. If you reside in the spiritual realm, you're an Elohim. All the Elohim who, who resided in the spiritual realm are now thrown down to earth because they're now man. But the earth is uninhabitable. So now they want to get back to their spiritual realm and they're going back to the mountain of God's assembly and they are trying to invade it. That's where we are. That's what this is all about. And that's when Jesus returns. So just like at Babel, when Jesus, when God said specifically, specifically that they would have succeeded in Babel at Babel, if God didn't intervene, once again, it looks like they probably would have succeeded in, in invading the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm. But again, God intervenes this in this case in, in, in the form of Jesus. So let's go to back to um, Revelation 19 and break down the verses where it says that Jesus descends on a white horse. He says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. Of course, this is not the same white horse as we saw in Revelation chapter six. That was a fake um, uh, Christ in, in Revelation chapter six, verse one. This is a real Christ real Jesus on a white horse. Why is it Jesus? We'll see in a minute. Him who sat on the horse was called faithful and true. Those are titles of Jesus. In righteousness or rightness, he judges and makes war. Jesus is making war, but he's doing it in a, a righteous way. The Antichrist wouldn't do that. So of course, this is Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This harkens back to Revelation chapter one, where we see the, the first uh, vision of Jesus that John the apostle has. And he is like a flame of fire. This is Jesus. On his head were many crowns. Okay, this, uh, this is, now we're getting into symbolic language here. It doesn't mean like, you know, he had like 10 crowns on his head. He's like balancing like some kind of you know, circus trick. No, it's just symbolic of the fact that he has total rulership. All these crowns were the crowns that the Elohim were given in, um, in Deuteronomy 32 when they were, when all of the uh, the sons of God, the Benaiha Elohim, were given authority over the nations, the 70 nations. And of course they all fell. And God said that in, in uh, Psalms 86, that they were supposed to, they were supposed to judge righteously, but they did not. And because of that, God said they would die like men. So these crowns are indicative of the fact that Jesus has all the authority of anyone on, on earth. And he, he was clothed with a robe. I'm sorry. So he had a name written that no one knew it except himself. We'll talk about that in a second. But here's what's important. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name was called the word of God. Well, we know the word of God is a title of Jesus. So there is no 
doubt that this is Jesus. We know in, from the um, uh, the Gospel of John in chapter one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Then later on, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, of course, Jesus. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And he you know, lived and was crucified and, uh, uh, and came back to life for our sins. So this is Jesus, clearly. Let's go back to, to verse 13. It says he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Wait a minute. So he's coming down on a horse from heaven, but his, his robe is dipped in blood. Whose blood was it? Was it his blood? No, this is not his blood. Why, his blood was already shed at Calvary. He doesn't have blood anymore. We know this from the Gospels, the episode, the narrative of, the, of doubting Thomas. When you know, Thomas, several of the disciples had seen Jesus resurrected and they were talking about it. And Thomas hadn't. And Thomas said, I won't believe him until I you know, see his See his 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 uh, hands pierced and his 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 um, his side pierced and Jesus appears to him and he says, "Look, I have you know flesh and bone. No, does not he he says he calls himself. He says he has flesh and bone. Notice he does not say he has flesh and blood. Flesh and bone. He only he doesn't have any blood. His blood has already been shed for us. So whatever blood this is on him, it does not come from Jesus. It is the blood of someone else. Whose blood is it?" It is the blood of his enemies. And that's why we have to go to another area of the Bible that outlines what happens in uh, in this narrative. And thus it gives us more insight in how the narrative goes. So we now need to go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 63. Isaiah 63, verse 1 says, starting at verse 1, who, who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my guard, garments and have stained my robe. For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redemption of my redeemed has come. This is the end of the tribulation period. This, this area in Isaiah talks about the, the so-called day of the Lord. And, and here it says that he has come, that Jesus, this is who Jesus is. This is who we're talking about here. He comes from Edom and from Basra. Well, what's an Edom and Basra? Well, remember at this point in history, there are two things happening. We have, the the invasion the attempted invasion in, in, of heaven by the antichrist and his forces so that's part of his forces but others of his for, forces are going to try to wipe out the jews why because they're trying to prevent the second coming the second coming of jesus they the evil people know the evil entities know that this is going to wreck them and they need to stop it how do they stop it well there's only one way to stop it because one of the prerequisites to Jesus returning is for the Jews to acknowledge their offense. We talked about this before. It's in Hosea. The, he says, Jesus says, I will return to my place until they acknowledge my, until they acknowledge, until they acknowledge their offense. In their, in their suffering, or their, they, they will basically, uh, they will seek me, earn, in their affliction, they will seek me earnestly and they will pray for me. So basically, at the end of the tribulation, the Jews will realize that they were wrong about the advent of Jesus. Remember, Jews don't believe that Jesus came in the first century. They're still waiting for their Messiah. They don't believe that the Jesus of the first century was their Messiah. But at the end of the tribulation, they will realize, well, we made a mistake. Jesus, our Messiah, really did come in the first century. And then they'll pray for forgiveness and pray that their Messiah come. And in three days, he will come. We've talked about this before. So in order for Jesus to to reappear for a second coming, the Jews at the time have to acknowledge that they missed him and they have acknowledged that they want him to come back. So part of the goal of the Antichrist is to prevent them from doing that. And why, how do you do that? By eliminating Jews. If no Jews exist, then they can't call for Jesus. We know that the Jews will be protected supernaturally by God for three and a half years. In Revelation chapter 12, we talked about this before, that when 
um, the when the man child Jesus is caught up to be with God, that the dragon will know that he has a short time left and he will he will uh, try to persecute the woman, the woman who is clothed in the sun with the 12 stars around her head and the moon of her feet, who represents Israel. Again, we've talked about this before. You can go back to that section, which is called the the um, the story of, of, of the, the story of time, the narrative of, of Revelation chapter 12. We talked about it before and I'll put links in the show notes show notes. When when this happens, they are they're told to flee. Jesus says in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation, in the temple, which in the abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist stands in the Jewish temple and, and claims to be God and demands worship. Jesus says to flee to the hills because your time's up and they're going to try to destroy the Jews that so they can't call on Jesus. But, but we know that the um, the Jews will be spared and they will they will flee to the area of Edom and, and Basra. How do we know this? Because the Bible says that that I mean, first of all, that's where they'll be. We just read that there that they will be in Basra or Edom, and that is modern day Jordan. I believe it's going to be the area called Petra, and we've we've talked about it before. We talked about it a couple of episodes ago. We talked about it last episode that this is where they will be hidden. How do we know they'll be hidden there? Well, let's look at a passage from Daniel, Daniel chapter um, eleven, verse forty-one. This is a prophecy against the Antichrist. Because remember, the Antichrist is going to conquer the whole world, but not all of it. Here is an area that he's not will not be conquered, and it says in verse forty-one of Daniel chapter eleven, he shall also enter the glorious land, which is Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown in his wake while he's conquering, but these shall escape his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Edom, Moab, Moab and Ammon is modern day Jordan. These three areas will escape the Antichrist's rule. Why? There's nothing prominent about them. They don't have any great armies or anything like that. So they will be supernaturally protected from the Antichrist. Why? Well, it only makes sense if they're protected because this is where the Jews will be hiding. It also it says here, as we read before in Isaiah 63, that Jesus is where Jesus will, will come to um to trot down his enemies so enemies will be surrounding the same area of edom and basra and we also know that the jews are told to flee went, went to the hills of edom and and basra and petra when the when um, the when the abomination of desolation happens so they're going to go to this area and it will be supernaturally protected so that's where they'll be hiding out and we see that Jesus goes here and he, this is where his garments are dipped in blood, not in his blood, the blood of his enemies. So if you look at the narrative, what has to happen before Jesus comes down in Revelation chapter 19, yeah, as, as, as I read earlier, he has to first go to Edom and Basra, to Petra, to where the Jews are hiding out. And there it says he treads on his enemies. He beats them down. He physically defeats them. This is Jesus fighting with them. And this is up close personal combat. This is not the kind of combat we're going to see a little later on in, in, in Revelation chapter 19. This is where it kind of looks like he, he defeats them from a distance. This is Jesus going down with a sword in his hand and Jesus is just kicking butt. I mean, let's just be honest. That's how it works. You don't get blood splattered on you unless you're in close combat. Jesus is a warrior and he is defeating these people. They're, they're part of the Antichrist army, which again consists of people who have taken the mark of the beast, meaning they're no longer human. They're now inhabited by Nephilim and which are demons, Nephilim themselves and other fallen angels. Jesus just goes down and he physically beats the tar out of them and he splatters their blood on him. I know what you're thinking. Oh, no, not my Jesus. My Jesus is gentle and meek and mild. And he just loves people. And he just he's a big old human cuddly teddy bear. And he's just heal, healing people and smiling and eh, whatever. That's not the real Jesus. That's the Jesus of your dreams. That's the Jesus you see on pictures with a lamb in, in one hand, and a little kid in the other hand. And granted, when Jesus was on Earth 2000 years ago, Yes, he was humble and he was lowly, 
But that's not all he is. Jesus is also a warrior on behalf of God. We see this at the burning bush in Exodus when Jesus was a warrior. He's the one who executed the, the, the plagues of Egypt, which devastated Egypt. He was the same one who confronted uh, Joshua during the battle to take back the to take back the, the promised land where he appeared as the angel of of God the messenger Elohim of Jehovah with a sword in his hand and he was there to fight on behalf of Israel Jesus had the role of the suffering servant when he was in during the first century but that's not who he is that's not all he is Jesus is, Jesus is also a warrior he is a king he has a rod of iron that rod isn't there to, to caress you with. A rod of iron is used to beat you over the head with when you get out of line. And we'll talk about that more when we get to millennium. But don't be mistaken and think and think gentle Jesus, meek and mild from your Sunday school lessons of Jesus holding a lamb and a kid, you know, a child and just, you know, with this beatific smile on his face. Uh, you know, looking like, you know, a, a guy with a goatee and long hair and a white robe. That's that's not who Jesus was. Nobody looked like we talked about this before. Jesus is a warrior. And here he judges and he makes war and he goes down and physically battles against the evil people who have plagued the earth since the beginning, since Genesis chapter three. These are people who have done horrible, terrible things. All the things you see now that are the result of spiritual evil that the things like, you know, uh, murder, war, uh, child abuse, molestation, economic hardships, just a horrible, horrible things that have happened that human beings have done to each other through the influence of the, of the evil for millennia that has Jesus has been angry about and has hated. Think of the Jesus who beat people out of the, out of the temple with, 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 you know, with, with the ropes he tied and he beat them out because they were, um, you know, cheating people um, at, at the temple. That's the Jesus we're seeing here. Jesus is a warrior and he's warring on behalf of his people. Have you ever asked yourself, why isn't God doing anything about all the horrible things that are happening to, to humanity, the, the torture and the rape and the misogyny and the brutality and the fact that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and suffer for no good reason. God is as angry about it as you are, if not more so, because God has experienced this for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he is angry and he wants to punish those who are responsible. And those who are responsible are the spiritual evil. And he is coming down and he is dealing with them and he is beating the living tar out of them. And their blood is splattering on him. That's where the blood from his, from his ropes come from. So... When Jesus first comes down, he does not come down to Arma, to Harmoed immediately. The first place he goes is to Petra, to Edom, to Basra, to the people who who are who the 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 entities were coming against his holy people Israel, and he beats the tar out of them with his sword. He slaughters them, and their blood splatter on him. And then apparently he hops back on his horse and he comes back up, and then and only then does he go to Har Moed, to Armageddon. And that's when we can go back to um, Isaiah, excuse me, to, to Revelation chapter 19. So let's go back there. So now we see um, going back to verse um, chapter 19, verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Again, that was the blood of his enemies. And his name is called, name is called the word of God, the Logos, that is Jesus. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And they're not there to fight because, as we'll see, they don't do anything. They're basically just witnessing. I think they're there to start to repopulate the devastated earth. But we'll get to that more later and also in the next few episodes. Now, out of his mouth, verse 15, goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. Now, there are certain um, pieces of art, and I'll try to have one up on the screen, that have this kind of grotesque picture of Jesus with a sword flying out of his mouth. And keep in mind, folks, that this, this is not allegory, but what it is, it's symbolic. When we see when we see Jesus happening, Jesus coming down at this point, he's not confined to our three-dimensional earth, to our three-dimensional perception. Remember, we, we basically can experience four dimensions, um, length, I'm sorry, height, depth, and I'm sorry, height, width, and depth. 
That's the three dimensions, and plus the dimension of time. Actually, scientists uh, have told us that we exist in at least 10 dimensions. So the three that we see are just a fraction of what's possible. That's why we can see, that's why when it says a, a sword comes out of its mouth, it's, it's not going to be like what, we can, what we'd imagine a sword flying out of a, a mouth would look like. That's why he can have many crowns on his head at the same time, even though that doesn't make any sense. In our three-dimensional world, just have one head with a bunch of crowns. But if you look at, but if you can, can conceptualize at least ten dimensions, it it's not something we can really see. But just keep in mind that things are happening in a dimensionality, in in a a perception that's beyond what we can currently visualize. But keep in mind what these things mean. His eyes like a flame of fire. That means judgment. On his hand, head were many crowns. As I said, that means he rules over all the nations. When it says that a sword comes out of his mouth, it doesn't mean that he opens his mouth and coughs up a bunch of swords that stab people. Now, that would look kind of cool with our, if we can imagine with our current CGI uh, technology, you know, some, someone doing that on a battlefield. But that's not what it means. The sword out of his mouth is the word of God. We, we see from the works of Paul that the word of God, the Bible, is sharper than any two-edged sword. So what he's speaking, he's speaking the word of God. Okay, let's keep moving on. Um, and so out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. He should, with it, he should strike the nations. So that's all the people who are there trying to invade heaven. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the wine press of the fierceness of God. So the, rule them with a rod of iron, that, that's a future state. That's a future title that we'll talk about when we get to the millennium in a couple of episodes from now. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God. So what does that mean about the treading the winepress? This gets to something that I want to talk about because it's it's a an area that's always kind of bothered me. I haven't been able to figure out. And to understand that fully, I want to go back a few chapters to Revelation chapter 14, which also talks about this period of time where he, where he reaps the, the, the what's called the grapes of wrath. So go back to Revelation chapter um, 14, uh, verse 18, reading from there. It says, And another angel came out of the altar who hath a power over fire, and he cried with a loud voice to him who hath a sharp sickle, saying, Thrust your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vines of the earth, for grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Remember, we just talked about this. It's the same winepress. And the wine press was trampled outside the city. Again, this is at that mountain Harmoed, because Harmoed is outside of the city. It's Armageddon. It's where this final so-called battle is taking place. It's the final confrontation. And the wine press was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. Why does this bother me? Because it doesn't fit. I try to take the Bible literally wherever I can. And I'm hesitant to allegorize it, but I can't do anything other than allegorize the amount of blood coming with the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs because it just doesn't make any sense. Why? Well, let's look at the measurements. How high is a horse's bridle? Uh, honestly, about four feet. That's generally about how high a horse's bridle is. If you've ever been near a horse, where his bridle is, horses are pretty big animals, four feet. I'll be generous and say maybe it's only three feet high. What is 600 furlongs? 600 furlongs is about 200 miles. So you have blood 200 miles long and three feet high. That's a lot of blood, folks. And you have to, if it pulls in up to three feet, you have to be in some kind of valley. And I'm going to be very conservative here. If I did the measurements, three feet high by 200, basically square miles long, that's about four trillion gallons of blood. How much blood is that? Well, the human body, now, th th again, this is supposed to be the blood that comes from defeating the his enemies here at Armageddon. The human body has about a gallon and a half of blood in it. I'm gonna, for the, I'm gonna be conservative. I'm gonna round up to two gallons of blood. So, how many people would you need to have that much blood to have 
three feet high by 200, by four trillion gallons of blood. A whole lot. More people than have ever existed in all of history. Right now, there are eight billion people on earth. Let's say the tribulation happened tomorrow. Well, keep in mind that a fourth of the people would be killed with the fourth horseman. And then you have another third killed with the the, the sixth seal of, of, of um, I'm sorry, but the sixth trumpet of Revelation. So now we're talking about, you know, maybe two billion people. But let's just say there's somehow there are eight billion people. Well, eight billion people with two gallons of blood each. That's 16 million gallons of blood. That's nowhere near four trillion. How do you get that much blood? It's, it bugs me. I, I, I can't figure it out. Not literally. And so I had a, a buddy of mine tell me that, well, what about the giants? Because remember, the Nephilim are going to be back. And Nephilim have, have according to the Pseudepigraphal Book of Enoch, they can be up to 30 feet tall. And then there are other, which again, not enough blood, though. Then there are other, you know, extra biblical sources that say that the Nephilim giants could have been as high as 100 feet tall, which I think is actually a problem because that really doesn't work with the physics of how their lungs will be able to process air. So a bunch of technical stuff I'm not going to get into. But let's just say for the sake of argument, you have 100 foot tall giants. How much blood would they have? Well, if you so human beings right now, average human being who's like five foot eight has two, two gallons of blood. I'm going to round down for the sake of being conservative and say a five foot tall person would have two gallons of blood. Again, I'm, I'm rounding down. Then that means a 10 foot tall person would have four gallons of blood. So a hundred foot tall person would have 40 gallons of blood. Problem with the 40 gallons of blood. Let's say you had at this point on earth, a billion giants, hundred feet tall. Well, folks, that's only 40 million gallons of blood. I mean, 40 billion gallons of blood. Still not even close to 4 trillion. Okay, let's say there were 10 billion giants on Earth who are 100 feet tall. Absurd amount. But even then, that only gets you 400 billion gallons of blood, not anywhere near 4 trillion. It's way too much, but it has to be an allegory. And so that bugs me. And so I have to allegorize it. It has to just be... Uh, an, an allegory for uh, allegory for just the amount of wrath is going forth. If that doesn't bug you, great. You know, you can skip that part. But for me, it bugs me, and I, I, I just nothing I can do about it because I, it can't be physical blood. I mean, the only way it could work is, I don't know, maybe you know, some of the blood from the River Euphrates, which had been turned to blood by this time, it becomes a part of this scenario. But that doesn't make sense because this is specifically specifically about the wrath of God on the people or the entities on Earth. Okay, sorry for that tangent. I just it's just something that bothers me, and I and I, I had to to at least address it here. Okay, let's move on. Sorry about that. Let's move on. All right, back to Revelation chapter nineteen, verse sixteen. And on his robe and on his thigh were a name was written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Keep in mind that on his thigh doesn't mean he has it necessarily has a tattoo that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're talking about his robe here. Um, on, on a priestly robe, a, a kingly robe, excuse me, words were written on the seam of the robe. And on his robe and on his thigh, it's the same thing. Because on the seam, which is where the seal of the king was written, it would have king of kings and lord of lords. Why, it says, why does it say his thigh? Because if you're, if you're a king riding a horse with a robe, the seam would come over your thigh. And so it's just basically saying that, and that on his thigh, on, 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 the, on the seam of the robe, which is where these things would be written, would be king of king and lords, lord of lords. That's where your title was written if you were a king at this, at, 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 during that time. So that's, that's his title. Okay, so I saw an angel standing in the sun. I think this is the same angel that we, that we saw in at the, I believe it was what, the, uh, the, the fourth uh bowl of wrath where it said where the sun was given a, a designation of he and the, the sun was scorching people i think there there is an angel an elohim over the sun same elohim cry with a loud voice saying to the birds of light in the midst of heaven come and gather together for the supper of the great god you may eat the flesh of all these different people interesting thing about these birds are these actual birds or, or are they something else because remember when we get to when we look at matthew chapters uh 12 and 13 where Jesus gives up his, his series of parables, including the parable of the sower, the birds are specifically said to be the agents of the enemy. 
So are these those same kind of birds? Are these the ancient, the, in, the, uh, the, the symbol of the agents of Satan? I don't think so. Why? Because as, as we'll see in a minute, the agents of Satan, all of them, fallen angels, are actually destroyed here. So I think these are just regular birds. These are regular carrion birds, birds that eat you know, dead flesh, like vultures and eagles. So as, as an aside, it's interesting that there are certain parts of God's creation that he doesn't seem to have high regard for. That he, even though they're, you know, they're good because they were created good, for whatever reason, they kind of get the short end of the stick. God doesn't um, see them very highly. Like water, for example. Water is vital. We need water to live. However, in the Bible, water is often associated with evil because water is where the fallen angels, where the Nephilim are bound. And we'll see when we get to the new heaven and new earth, uh, there's no more sea. Because the you know, the sea the, the seas were uh, again there are sores of evil, and we also see that when during the creation narrative, the only day that God doesn't pronounce good is the is the um, the second day when He separates the land from the water. So something about water is evil to God, and same thing with birds. Birds are usually considered evil. There are very few positive things said about birds. Doves are spoken of positively. Sparrows, maybe, maybe not kind of spoken of positively, but and eagles occasionally. But most of the time, birds are, you know, not highly regarded. Another thing that bothers me is that God doesn't highly regard dogs. You know, dogs are usually an idiom for, you know, unclean creatures. Uh, we'll see later in, in this, in Revelation, where dogs are a, a, given, a description given to people who are outside of heaven, which kind of bothers me because I like dogs. I'm a dog person. I have a dog now. I love my dog. Dogs are friendly and they're loyal and they're protective, but God doesn't regard them highly. Felines, he does. You know, the lion of the tribe of Judah is one of the titles of Jesus. So God seems to regard cats and felines highly, but not dogs. And that bugs me because I don't really like cats. <laughs> I mean, I don't hate cats, but I'm not a cat person. Cats are usually, cats are kind of jerks. You know, they... They eat your food and they drink your water, but they don't give you attitude. And they don't come when you call them and they're not loyal. They don't protect you. Hey, if someone's breaking into my house, I know my dog is going to bark and my dog is going to try to attack them. Has, it, has anyone ever had a cat attack someone who, who invades their house? Not so much. But hey, God doesn't like dogs. He seems to like cats. Who knows? God's a cat person. Okay, way, way off topic. Let's move on. So, so the birds are called to eat the to eat the to eat the flesh of kings and captains and mighty men, gibberim, which are nephilim, the flesh of horses and those sit sit on them. So basically, the birds are called. You're going to be eating all these all these folks or these entities who are fighting against God. Chapter 19. I'm excuse me. Verse 19. I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies were gathered together to make war against him, was set on the horse and against his army. <laughs> Good luck against that. And so basically Jesus, after going to Basra, uh, freeing, the, freeing the Jews and trampling their enemies, Jesus comes back on the horse. And and while they're trying to invade the earth, I'm sorry, they're trying to invade heaven, excuse me. They are, they see Jesus coming and the Antichrist, the beast and the false prophet turn their attention to Jesus. Okay, let's attack him. Yeah, again, good luck. Doesn't work too well for him. Verse 20, the beast was captured. Doesn't seem to be much much of an effort um, in his capture. The beast was captured and the false prophet who deceived everyone. And the two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed. The rest of all the armies were killed with a sword, proceeded out of the mouth of him who sat on the, on the horse. And, and the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, so well, that's it. That's Armageddon. So let's, let me take like five minutes and just give you the scenario. Here's what seems to be what happened. The bulls of wrath are poured out. The Antichrist knows his time is up, that everyone's on the board. It's, it's, you know, they've got nothing left. The earth is devastated. There's no point in even wanting to be on the earth anymore. They're going down to the Mount of Assembly at Mount Moriah at Harmoed to invade heaven. And who knows, he probably would have succeeded. Jesus, finally, and the, the Israelites, the Jews are um, under under duress and they finally recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. They call out to him. Three days later, he comes back. He first goes to, to, to Basra, to Edom, and he beats the tar out of the 
portion of the Antichrist army that was coming against Israel. And then he gets on his horse. He flies back up to Harmoed. He speaks words. It says that the, the sword of, comes out of his mouth is words. It's the, it's the, the, it's the word of God. I'm guessing it's going to be probably Psalms chapter two. Why does the nation is raised and the heathen imagine a, a vain thing? So forth and so on. You can read chapter two yourself. I think it's a great verse. And he probably just, he, Jesus just speaks words and all of the enemies are dissolved. They just die right there. There's no battle. This isn't like, I mean, it's, it seems kind of anticlimactic. It's not like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones where you have these big epic climactic battles that last for hours and hours. No, Jesus doesn't need to take hours to kill his enemies. He just says, you guys are toast and they're toast. They're done. And then a bunch of vultures and eagles come down and eat their flesh. And that's that. And the and the, the Antichrist, the, the beast and the false prophet are just snatched up and thrown into the lake of fire, which we call hell. And that's the end. That's Armageddon. Again, looked at in that sense, it's not this great battle that we like to think of. It is just a simple matter of Jesus saying, OK, I'm going to rescue my people Israel and stomp on their enemies. Then I'm going to get back in the in the air in my horse and I see these armies gather against them. And I'm going to say, you guys are toast and they're toast. They're done. Finished. Finito. End of the battle. End of Armageddon. And I did not think that this would take 51 plus minutes, but it looks like it has because I just bloviated a little longer than I anticipated. But that's where we are. So I want to wrap this up because we're way, way, way over time. I, I thought this would go shorter and it didn't. So I just want to say uh, thank you for listening again and watching. I appreciate it. Please subscribe to faithbyreason.net by putting your email address into the right navigation bar so you will see these new posts as they go up. Please subscribe on YouTube or everywhere else you see me on, think on Rumble and if I get Rockfin working, we'll, you just subscribe there. And in the next episode, we're going to, normally we would, head over to the the millennium however there is something else i want to address there's a, a very major end times event that does not seem to fit cleanly into any aspect of revelation but it must happen during this point and that is the gog magog war of ezekiel chapters um 38 and 39 and this is something that we need to figure out what what is it when does it happen and what impact does it have? And we'll talk about that next time. So thank you again for listening and watching. Please subscribe. And I will talk to you next time when we look at the Gog-Magog War. And after that, we will get to the Millennium.